Hi, and welcome to the Wireless Podcast. On today's show, we talk about the IEEE with me, Rick Murphy. This Murphy is spelled with three E's. I'm joined by Christian Roberts, Ryan Dodds, Alan Blake, and on his landlord Mr. Dan Jones. So you got me in trouble with Dan. I haven't even met him. You don't want to. Yeah. It's not something. Where is it? Question. I mean, you've even got a raving report of Ryan's maybe up there. Come in, Ryan. Can you hear us? Loud and clear. Over. Good. Stay on mute. <laughs> it's really noisy where you are. <laughs> uh, so, um, so Rick, as our kind of new ordained landlord for this evening, uh, thank you. Um, I think already you're doing a much better job than Dan. Just my opinion. I think the intro is probably the best one we've ever had. Period. So, sure. thank you. Um, so, so the next thing we need to do as a landlord is to kind of, you know, I guess just waffle, talk, small talk, crack a joke, um, ask us what you're drinking, what we're drinking, that kind of thing. Okay. All right. Well, first of all, uh, thanks for inviting me over. Um, made it the jump across the pond. As you know, I'm located in Colorado and we're doing this transcendentally and uh, glad to, to share some time with you, you folks. No, you flew, oh, over. you flew over on a plane to be our landlord to open up so that we could come in because this is a virtual pub. That's true. That's true. Just I, flew, I flew over on a virtual plane to be the landlord of your virtual pub. Yes. That's okay. correct. That's virtual Atlantic. It's <laughs> 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 a lot shorter that way. Now, I'm, I'm closer to the West Coast, but it's a lot longer that if I go that <laughs> so. so thanks for having me on, you guys. I, I've listened to the Wireless Pubcast, and I thought it was a, a lot of fun. And um, that's kind of the point. Uh, Wi-Fi is kind of dry, so it's, it's good to be able to have a few laughs once in a while. And... Uh, share some ideas about Wi-Fi. So Alan, I can I can see that you're uh, sitting there. It looks like you're kind of parched uh, from what I can tell. Do you happen to have any um, refreshments with you? Thanks for asking. Dan never asks me, you know, am I parched? He just, you know, he's just ignorant. He just throws it out there to say what you're drinking. He never asks me how I am and, you know, whether I am dry of mouth. But uh, yes, thanks Rick, for asking. I have, um, as always, a multitude of choice and there's a story behind the choices. Okay, and uh, the the story is that I sent my son. Wow, well, I didn't send my son. My son bought me these beers with his mum. Okay, because my son is only twelve, so he decided for his dad's podcast he would bring some beers back for me, and he bought back a selection. Um, unfortunately, twelve-year-old boy is going to choose some beers that aren't necessarily the man's flavour, if you know what I mean. And I'll give you a, an example. So the first beer he bought me was called which I thought was a pretty cool name. It's called Much Ado About Muffin. Yeah, Much Ado About Muffin. 
However... Is that muffin with a G on the end, or...? No, it's muffin as in spell <laughs> M-U-F-F-I-N, and it's right. blueberry muffin pale ale. So I'm not going to be drinking that. Yeah, it sounds disgusting. And then he also decided to pick up this one, which looks pretty. Yeah, it's called Off Tempo. However, it's a milkshake IPA. I'm not going to be drinking Are you not even going to try it? Hell no. <laughs> well, I will, just for the, for the, for the sake of Can we... Um... Can you crack open the blueberry muffin one? What we'll do is we'll actually record the video, and this will be our first ever YouTube video, a live reaction. It'll be obvious. Bring the blueberry muffins. <laughs> oh, God, it's not going to be pretty, I tell you. But the other thing, the other one, the final one he actually bought me, which is actually the worst one, so I'm more than happy to do the muffin. It's called Explicit Emphasis, and it is a salted caramel stout. <laughs> Oh, Rick, do you want to try this? <laughs> um, yeah, I think I'm going to stay with my uh, Rocky Mountain spring water. Thanks for the offer. Yeah, so... Those sound delicious, though, Alan. I think your son has excellent taste. In... <laughs> they, 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 sound like, they sound like good desserts. It'll go nice after a roast beef uh, IPA. Um, maybe you need some jelly or something like that as well. <laughs> the jelly maybe ice cream in... IPA. Can you imagine that? Yeah, about... Vodka jellies? Oh, that's legendary. That's legendary. Yeah. But there you go. So, yeah, never let a 12 year old buy your beer. That's the moral of the story. <laughs> Lesson learned. Now you've got to ask Christian. Okay. Christian, I see that you're sitting there in uh, all your dryness. Can you tell us how you plan to spend the rest of the evening? Uh, yeah. So, uh, I sent my wife to the shop and she bought me a big bottle of Estrella Dam. So it's um, probably the safest thing to come out of Barcelona in recent months. Um, and uh, I've got a rum and coke as well, which is my standard drink, my standard tipple. So you say rum and coke, but do you mean rum and coke or do you mean Captain Morgan and coke? Uh, this is a supermarket own brand, a supermarket's own brand version of Captain Morgan's. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Captain Moran's? <laughs> no, no, it's... Um... Or is he a lieutenant? Because it's not as good. <laughs> It's just, called, <laughs> it's just called navy rum <laughs> navy rum yeah well, I, that's my drink of choice as well i like captain morgan but with mexican coke so here in the states where we've got the uh distilled out uh modern 2020 version of coca-cola we can still get some coke imported from mexico that actually uses sugarcane instead of some other derivative sweetener and that's the best. Captain Morgan and Mexican Coke is, is the best drink I know of. Wow. We get taxed. We get taxed on sugar. You get taxed on sugar, huh? Yeah. Well, next time you're in the States, we'll go and, and try some. Definitely. Okay. We, we now have Coke Zero. Sugar-free, but it's a bit cheaper. If you, want, if you want sugar, you've got to pay more money. Well, in Mexico, I think it's the other way around. My kind of place. Yeah. I never knew there was Mexican Coke. <laughs> That sounds, that sounds pretty... It's pretty Colombian normally, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've had Mexican Coke before, I think. Have you? That's a night out in the northeast, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's 2 a.m. drinking, that is. <laughs> oh well, thanks for sharing that, Christian. Uh, Ryan, I see you're driving, so I assume that you plan to have a, a rather austere drive home. Can you tell us? Yes, yes. just to clarify for the police, I am drinking <laughs> Red Bull. There you go. 
All right, it may be full of alcohol, but it's a Red Bull. <laughs> Does it give you wings? You're flying home, aren't you, Ryan? I am. I'm doing a smooth 70 miles an hour on cruise control. But what the police don't realise is that the reason why Ryan's drinking Red Bull is just because he's been driving straight for 13 hours. <laughs> and is it a 50 zone as well? <laughs> <laughs> and I've driven way past my house. I'm now in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, so, Rick, we know you're tipple. You love Mexican Coke. Uh-huh. What are you drinking right now? So, unfortunately, guys, it's a little early here for me, and I usually reserve my uh, imbibing hours to the weekends. So, I'm just drinking. I've got uh, uh, Rocky Mountain Snow Melt, and that's uh, just water from the tap with some ice cubes in it. But it's cold. That, that sounds delicious. way more cooler It's Rocky Mountain Snow Melt for water, whereas in England, we call that council pop. <laughs> council, pop. council pop yeah that's that's what ryan and christian drink loads of <laughs> yorkshire water is the best yorkshire best yorkshire the best water in the country all the bollocks you can't get better than northumbrian water it comes straight from the spring from keel the reservoir bollocks you're talking other shite bit a bit of harrogate spa can't beat it <laughs> spring water from a deep well is is hard to beat but is it is it here's a question is it fresh? As in, when it comes out of the well and it gets sold in the supermarket, does it go through a process where it has to be injected with all sorts of chemicals to be preserved? Because I've noticed that some bottles of water have a sell-by date. Did you know that? I've never really even realised that water had a, water goes off. The statement. You know, uh, I think does water... It? There's actually a artesian um, aquifer that they sell bottled water from the aquifer and they say it's a million years old and never had any additives and it was, you know, um, it's water from the time, times of the dinosaurs and uh, it's, I don't think water ever goes bad unless you put additives in it and then the additives might go bad. But I'm not a scientist and I don't play one on TV. So um, I'm just guessing about that. You're a landlord now. That's why we're landlord. Here we go. I'm gonna drink another this. life dream realized. See, right, I'm just about to drink the muffin. Don't fish me that. Actually, it's not bad. Doesn't taste anything like a uh, last it's a uh, blueberry muffin. Doesn't taste anything like blueberry muffin. It, it's, it's like when people drink wine and go, oh, it's, got a, it's got a taste of. Uh, apricot in it it's like that's never been near an apricot bugger off <laughs> so just from what i saw watching you and for anybody who might be listening at first when you press the can to your lips your eyes knitted your brows were raised in a quizzical manner and you began a frown but then it turned into a bright smile so good for you it sounds like your son made a good choice for you no, that's, and just, I, that's just the alcohol kicking ah normally when i record these a few beers in so it's probably just me just happy drunk smile <laughs> i'm joking by the way i'm a professional i don't drink recordings. absolutely what Sorry. what is the alcohol content of um uh, uk brews in the u.s we're limited to i think six percent and some of it's less than that between four and six percent 
Yeah, I thought UK uh, brews were much, much stronger. They can be. I think, on average, I think between four and, I guess, five and a half percent is, I oh. think, is the kind of the, the magic but, range. But, but then we get the special brews and the, uh, like the Polish imports and stuff like that, which are as much as 15%. So, Rick, whenever you come over to the UK, okay, um, get yourself a tenant super. Get yourself into an Asda or Tesco supermarket. Just go and grab yourself a can, four cans of tent super. Take, take them back to your hotel room. <laughs> just drink You're all an absolute and just how the next day goes. <laughs> no, I, le I learned my lesson about drinking in Great Britain. It is, uh, you have to be very, very careful. And yeah, you want to you wanna be isolated and not around people. Or at least I find that work best for me. I've never been careful. Who <laughs> <laughs> is? When? What do you need to be careful? I mean, are you kind of are you, are you someone who turns violent? <laughs> it sounds like you've got battle scars, Rick. That's what I mean, it's like you just scared me. I'm never going to go out for a day with you. <laughs> I'm worried. Why? Why would you need to be isolated? Oh. um Well, for one, okay. So the the first time I was in in England. And uh, I was teaching at Milden Hall Air Force Base. And after class that, that night, I wandered down to a pub and wandered in and um, everybody there was watching uh, a game of, it must have been rugby, but they kept calling it football. <laughs> and uh, I was cheering at the wrong times and for the wrong team. And after a couple of, I think they're called black and white. Does that sound right? Football. Uh, maybe it was tan and white. Anyway, it, it was a, a Murphy's with a, with a shot or something, kind of like a boiler maker, but with a, a, a heavy, dark lager beer dropped in. And after a couple of those, I was, uh, I actually took the opposite team and started cheering for them. And I did escape, but, uh, <laughs> Well, I wasn't going to go back to that same place again the next night. So, first choice, first choice. That's that's exactly why I need to be careful and isolated. So, Mr. Murphy, then let's uh, let's move away from talking about alcohol. Let's talk about let's talk about you. Let's talk about the fact that you're my ex-boss. For those people that don't know that it was my ex-boss, um, had uh, uh, How long did did it did it fire you or why ex? I fired you. Yeah. Are, so, are you referring to Wireless Line Association? I am indeed, sir. So, can I can I make a little notation here? First of all, Alan had the entire idea for Wireless Line Association, and I was uh, just kind of the pusher, trying to push him into getting it started. And he said, "Well, if you're so up for it, then why don't you uh, take the lead, and I'll back you up." So, if that's what you mean by boss, actually, I felt that you were kind of um, Leading from behind, if if that's a good word, and always work. So. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. That's a different way to put it. But um, but thank you, and you're completely right. You know, let, let's not be around the bush here. I'm joking, but but no. Um, so we worked together. In fact, the story is that um, before the Wild Science Association was formed, it was the Wild Science Advisory Board, which you were also an integral part of. So you're pretty much a founding, a founding father. Pretty much, you know what I mean. So you know, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Jefferson—we're right up there with these dudes, the man. So hopefully one day we'll see our 
faces etched in, is it Mount Rushmore? It is Mount Rushmore. Or maybe yeah. it'll just be etched in a lump of cheese. Who knows? But the point is that um, we formed the advisory board first, and that was actually you who was in the meetings with Pixie, even back in the early days in 2016. So it's yourself, I feel, was the one that was the linchpin to kind of, I guess, ignite the touch paper to grab some wireless resources, those within the field, and knowing you were actually engaging and participating with, with the meetings within Pixie made me realize that there's other people with a common interest to drive this initiative to where it is today. So yeah, so for me, yeah, you everyone always compliments me to say that I just kind of was the guy that stood up and just rabbited on and just blacked my way through life and said we need a wireless science association to drive forward to design standards. But actually, you were the guy doing that, actually, and not people really know that. So that's why people need to know this, and that's why you're my ex boss because you did, you were the first president of the wireless science association, and you served very well, and um, we achieved a lot. But you decided to, um, you know, jack it in and move on to Pastures New. Um, enough's enough. I've had enough of the wireless sound community. It's on you now, Alan, to um, steer it forward. Um, you know, you've got broader shoulders than me because I've got the gym. Um, I'm joking. Um, but anyway, I've really been drinking, by the way, so I might be kind of waffling off on a tangent, so I do apologise. But anyway, so, so, so the reason why I brought you in, Rick, is because I wanted to kind of talk to you, not about wireless sound association, who cares about it. What I want to talk to you about realistically is an even bigger organization, which is the IEEE. Because not a lot of people really know about, I guess, the IEEE, as in like the intricacies of how they work, how they are um, involved in. Their, in uh, let me rephrase that. What's involved with their processes, their proceedings, how they kind of go from, and here is, here's my joke, how they go from A to 11A to B. Um, in September. Tough so, good, good, good job. Thanks, lads. First of all, thanks for the kind words about Wireless Land Association. And uh, I just want you to know, I, I really haven't pulled out of the Wi-Fi community. I just kind of go where my interests take me, takes me and uh, whatever. Also, I feel where I'm kind of needed. And what I'm needed about is uh, uh, I'm kind of... Uh, uh, like you said, a, a pusher, you know, I try to uh, keep things moving along. So I've been a member and still in, am an active member in many organizations that have to do with networking general and um, uh, Wi-Fi specifically and have been since 1984 or something like that. But you mentioned Bixie. So I was involved with Bixie and helped write their ANSI national standard for wireless in building. Um, at the same time, we were doing the wireless line advisory board, and we had the idea at the time that uh, we would we would create an organization that could put together technical standards for practitioners to adhere to. Now, I've got some experience with other organizations, so I've been a member of the Network Professional Association, which is both wired and wireless side, uh, for many years. And so, right now, I'm kind of more active with them than I am with Wireless Line Association. Uh, we're doing some things that have to do with, you know, we're trying to help put together some ideas on how we can uh, help with COVID as almost everybody is. And what is it, how can we take our skills and our, our uh, uh, knowledge and, and help in some small way to give back to the community with COVID. And what we're putting together is some uh, 
some processes to uh, have our 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 technologists reach out to schools and help the the people who are trying to work from home improve their home Wi-Fi and internet connectivity. So that's kind of the project I'm working on right now. But all of this stems, of course, from uh, uh, from IEEE. And as you mentioned, a lot of people don't understand the ins and outs of IEEE. It's just you kind of hear, you know, okay, well, IEEE is working on this new standard. And then four or five years later, they're still working on that standard. And why does it take so long? And, and um, you know, uh, what effect does it have uh, when, it, when it finally gets to the end point, like we are with uh, uh, TGAX right now? So uh, I think that's kind of what you meant. Didn't mean to hog the spotlight, but I, I hope that's what you had in mind. So, yeah. Um, and I can, I can take you into that. I've been a member of IEEE for 13 or 14 years, something like that. Uh, fortunately, uh, any organization that would accept me as a member is not going to be super, super um, restrictive on, on who they allow to attend. So, Well, let's just, let's just ask the question, how do you become a member? Because I looked into this earlier because I researched my stuff for this program because I'm passionate. I keep telling you. I did some research and I just Googled IEEE and it brought me to the website. And you can actually join for yes. a fee for, I think it's $85. Yeah? Depends. So there's, uh, so there's a membership. That's an IEEE membership. But you probably would want to be a member of the Standards Association, which is an additional annual membership. So my total membership costs around $300 per year. And that's annual. Uh, so you've got your standard IEEE membership, then you have the Standards Association membership, and then you can attend the 802 uh, Landman Standards Committee meetings. And uh, that's that's where the fun's at. So how, how much of a voice does that $300 a year give you? I have exactly as much of a voice as I want to participate and stand up and speak. Everybody uh, at the meetings, uh, and, and so there, IEEE uh, Standards Association 802 meetings, the, the plenary meetings, they have three of them a year, and then they have interim meetings for 802.11 on the months they don't have the plenary meeting. Plenary is everybody, the entire uh, 802. That's uh, 802.3, 802.11, 802.15, all of the, the groups come together. And um, so in the you, you kind of stay with your group and I'm getting a little bit out of order here, but uh, it's in, the, the big thing in IEEE 802 is to become a voter and a voter is painful because you have to attend uh, you, in order to cast a vote. You have to attend three of the last four plenary meetings and these are spaced all around the world. So you've got to be able to travel and it's essentially every quarter. So you've got to go to, sometimes they'll be in your country, sometimes they'll be clearer on the other side of the planet. So um, most people who are members, who are active members, do this as their full-time job. So they're employed by a, a corporation. There are independents like me who sponsor themselves, who go to the meetings that they can. And so I'm an intermittent voter. So if I can manage to get to three of the last four plenary meetings, now I'm a voter, I get to vote on the standards. But all during all the little sessions that you have, 
you can vote during straw polls, you can vote uh, in standing committees, and um, you can have your, you can always stand up and have your word listened to whether you're a voter or not. So the whole point of uh, the uh, 802 meetings is each individual task group, for instance, uh, at, you've heard of 802.11ax, but it's not really 802.11ax yet, not until it's published. And I can tell you a little more about that, where we're at with that in just a second. But we call it task group AX, which is the committee. So task group AX is um, uh, currently on draft 6.1. And there have been, every time there's a new draft and a vote on it, uh, it's put out and the voters will make comments. So, so far, 802.11ax or TGAX has had 15,000 separate comments. Each one has to be resolved before we can proceed with the next draft. So right now, we've got 15,000 resolved comments. And at, uh, as of uh, last week, which was our, our uh, July meeting, uh, we got only a few more comments and um, it looks like everything's good to go. Everything's gonna be passed in September, and then it will go to REVCOM, which is the Standards Review Committee. Once it goes to REVCOM, uh, if they sign off on it, it's a standard then. So uh, that should happen in November, 2020. Cool. So I see that uh, Dan has just joined us. And Dan, uh, we took a vote, and I've been voted in as the new landlord of uh, uh. Wi-Fi. What we're doing is we're going to make we're work. This is a working task group now. We're making um, an amendment to the okay. the landlord podcast. Um, so we're going to have a revision come out very soon. Probably going to be delayed because we've got a few thousand comments to go through. Probably all from you. I'm going to screw you over with red tape nonstop. I'm just <laughs> going to keep it. Just keep it going. <laughs> I, don't, I can't get voted out. <laughs> the I triple P off. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to uh, your show. Yeah. Hi. How's it going? It's going Thanks great. for having it's, me, Dan. I'm it's, it's been brilliant so far. I mean, it's been <laughs> the best ever. Best episode ever. Well, where have you been? I mean, you're shaking your uh, responsibilities as a landlord and you're leaving it up to people like Rick to hold the fort. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, yeah. Rick. I, I, well, I owe you a beer. I'm trying to hold up the. the uh, crown but uh i'm ha happy to hand it back over you just say the word no no i'm i'm i'm, I'm <gasps> is that a vintage mac in the background there oh uh, yeah that's a, a oh 128 mac i forget the serial no. number is like 350 like wow. what, a, what a nerd <laughs> <laughs> got a got a good eye yeah he's, i love he's, it he's just one Can of you spot the altair yeah the commodore i love it can you spot the Altair? The one, yeah, the yeah, one right the behind you. Yeah. Chris, Christian, do you want to let these two have a moment together? Let's, well, just, I, I, let's, I've, I've got, let's go out and have a fag. If you guys I've could got, leave. I've got a funny story, actually. I, I, I once bought a Commodore 64 on eBay, right? And it was dirt cheap, and I thought, that's brilliant. And the B key didn't work, so I couldn't actually type boot. <laughs> There's so a, you could hold down a function key and uh and uh, another key and have it boot automatically but that's actually oh. vic 20 that's the vic 20 that i wrote um uh guitar tuner on in 1982 and we sold it in compute magazine for 15 dollars us wow that was and nine years before a bond <laughs> 
we sold enough copies of my program that I was able to pay for the advertisement in Compute Magazine. I broke even on the ad. Nice. That's, that's why I went into networking instead of programming. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Good to see what's, you. What's the, what's the one on, over, over your right shoulder at the top? In the uh, wooden case? Yeah. So, uh, glad you asked. This is, this that is, happens this is to be a work. This is a podcast, right? It's audio. <laughs> great podcast so material. So this is going to be rubbish for people <laughs> who will be, be listening and go, what the fuck are you talking about? So Rick, right. you're going to have to explain a little bit more detail what's behind you. Okay. Yeah. So I've just got a bookshelf behind me with some of my old vintage equipment. Uh, and the one that Dan just asked me about is my favorite one. That's a working replica of a German Enigma encoder. No. Decoder. Yeah. It's, uh, it's got an Arduino processor. But other than that, all the keys, the plug boards, everything looks to be the size is even the same as an Enigma. This was wow. um, this was built. The plans were put together by a couple of IEEE guys who put it into their IEEE Spectrum magazine, and you could buy the kit and assemble it. And I, I did that. It's uh, three or four hundred dollars. I just saw one of these Enig the real Enigma sh machines went for like three hundred and fifty thousand yeah. uh, dollars at auction. But this one didn't cost me quite that much but it works <laughs> it looks it works awesome i actually use this in some of my classes i i made the uh password to access the website for the class i made the i encoded the password and made everybody in the class decode it to get, if they wanted to get to their course material nice and, and that was the, the best thing that came out in that for germany wasn't it the arduino <laughs> Nazi Germany. You can't say that, can we? Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure. I I don't remember who invented Arduino. It might have been a German scientist back in the 40s. <laughs> Alan, who who cracked the Enigma? Can you remember? Humpty Dumpty. It was um Mark, Come on now. Uh, Alan Turing. Come on. Yes. yes. I know awesome. this. I, you can't get me on stuff like this. Um I, uh, I I don't know the history of this, um, just to be fair, because it happened such a long time ago. Rick, you, you were born then. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just born at that time. So even even I don't go back quite that far. There's a good there's a good Number Files episode on it, actually, which talks about how they uh, cracked it. And I think it was Weather Reports, wasn't it, or something to do with that? I can't remember. Obviously, I haven't one There's a good movie on about that that shows, yeah, I think yeah. it's pretty accurate um yeah it's a good movie but um to move on so enough about my bookshelf unless you guys are really yeah, sorry there's, 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 there's yeah. one other thing behind you that's in like this, this white it's cisco what's cisco <laughs> <laughs> um, um oh that cisco yeah. cisco what's, what's cisco <laughs> cisco is a, a small marketing company here in the u.s that uh puts on uh sunday brunches and they occasionally will pull together uh, technology professionals and um, um, uh, sell them uh, different pieces of uh, uh, garments books. and yeah, garments, books, and uh, hats, things like that. They have a, a lot of very nice uh, bracelets and necklaces for sale. We should we should go to them for podcast merch, right? Cisco, no, no for the merch. They're based out in uh, San Francisco, aren't they? Because I think their emblem is like a bridge. 
but they're not. But they're not. San Jose, I think, isn't it? Oh, is it? Just, just north of New York. <laughs> That's the thing, isn't it? Well, I'm going to do that to Americans. It's like, well, where are you from? I'm from, I don't know. I'm from Denver, of, Denver, Colorado. Where's that? Just like five miles west what? of New York. <laughs> Everywhere's west of New York. That's all I'm going to. That's all I'm going to do. I'm going to, and if everyone asks, I've been to New York, and how far away is it from New York? And, and that's what that's my starting point in work, mother. From there, uh, with you, wouldn't it be Vegas? How how far away from Vegas it is? Yes, to be fair, that would be, uh, that would be my demarker. My marker. I thought you were right so, to San Francisco. Sorry, guys. What what were you what were you guys talking about before I rudely interrupted with the? Is that a Mac behind you? <laughs> um, Know. We're talking about what what that is behind you. Is that a mothership? What's behind me? <laughs> is, this a, is this a game show? <laughs> what What's behind you? Let's have a look at what you could have won. <laughs> you get get your get your tortoises out then. I don't think Ryan can see our screen. He shouldn't be looking. He shouldn't be looking Ryan, at the screen. Someone is driving. So he's just trying to imagine. <laughs> is he pulled over? Is he? Is he pulled over? Oh. He pulled over. Not enough. What? No, he's not even with his knee. He's not even looking at the road. <laughs> Got a great view up his nose as he's driving. Should right, have been we're... in attention school, you would have saw me bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, so we were talking about, we, so Rick was talking about the, um, the IEEE. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess, I guess there's a whole heap of questions because we covered quite a quite a lot and we were talking about mainly the membership at the minute in terms of what you get for your dollar how much is mm-hmm. it and uh, the entitlements and things like this so just to con- kind of continue on with the conversation rick in terms of um when you become a member and you pay your whatever membership fees and you become a member of the IEEE SA, which is the standards association mm-hmm. does that give you automatic voting rights for example to um, anything on anything that's A2.x related. And I say X, you know. Yeah, no, it, it doesn't give you any voting rights for that. It gives you the right to attend the meetings, which is how you would attain voting rights. So uh, you have to attend uh, three of the last four plenary meetings. And plenary, as I said, was where all the uh, working groups come together. And uh, when you attend that, then it's even further than that. So you attend the plenary meeting, you declare which of your uh, working groups you're to be affiliated with. For me, it's uh, 802.3 Ethernet and uh, 802.11 wireless are my two main topics, but mostly wireless. So during the the course of the plenary meeting, I have to attend 75% of the uh, task group sessions that are available. And they track you when you go into the room you have to open up a website and click, and you're connected to uh, the access point in that room, and it can kind of tell you, keep you sort of honest, and uh, say, okay, I'm in this room, I'm attending this two-hour session with uh, 802.11bb, uh, task group BB would be the uh, uh, Wi-Fi uh, task group, you know, uh, that's Wi-Fi over light, and um, then when that ends, you have to get up and you go to the next meeting. They keep you hopping. And at the end of the plenary session, four or five days long, you had to attend 75% of those sessions for that 
plenary meeting to count as one of the three that you have to uh, attend in order to achieve a voter status, which is why sometimes I'm a voter, sometimes I'm not. Depends on the the years and how busy I am with uh, at, at work with wits. So and you and and you have to physically attend. There's no virtual attendance. Ah, very good question, Dan. So last uh, week, uh, yeah, no, two weeks ago. It was uh, two weeks ago. They had the first virtual plenary meeting, completely online. It went really really well, and I think they're. I know the next one is also going to be virtual, and it's due to the pandemic. Um, yeah. So, but it, it's really nice. I don't have to travel to India, which you know I can scarcely so, afford to, to uh, do that. You know, as a vacation, much less as a, a work thing. So, yeah. So, and it it went really well. Uh, I think they are pleased with the results, and it allowed us to continue working because the last two plenary meetings were canceled outright. Right. And uh, that kind of put the work behind, and we've got target dates. Everybody wants everybody wants uh, AX right now to be completed and get get published so that uh, we can so everybody can see it. So that's the other thing. Once this is published, it will go up for sale for six months. The the document, and that's so the manufacturers they can purchase it, and that's what kind of helps underwrite these plenary meetings is is selling the documents. After six months, it's available to everybody for free. How far away are we? Uh, so uh, <laughs> looks like November for final release by Revcom, the okay. uh, standards review committee. That's the, the final stop. I thought it was supposed to be released already. Uh, no. So what they've done is the drafts that are out there, what happened, what, what I think you're thinking of is the Wi-Fi Alliance has taken the drafts that are out there and it's uh, draft 6.0. Draft 6.0 is pretty much approved, and the Wi-Fi Alliance took that draft. They wrote the cross-vendor compatibility uh, testing programs to go with uh, draft six of TGAX, and um, that's what everybody's building equipment to. So no, it's not done. It's uh, well. Is is the thing then, in your opinion, is that a good idea that vendors start building out ahead of the release by the IEEE of the final? draft or even the official standard because if it's not ratified and there could be changes then there's obviously massive implications but also it makes me think that organizations like the Wi-Fi Alliance decide to take the initiative and say right we're going to go ahead and write whatever we need to write to make sure it's interoperable and chipset manufacturers decide to implement the protocol as it is based on draft version 6 then surely they are confident that there's not going to be much of an amendment or sorry, much change to what is actually within the protocol that a lot of it is just process bureaucracy. Nothing core. Just, yeah. Yeah, just pen pushing to a to a degree that they have the IEEE have to follow a process in order to get it official officially, like you mentioned earlier, about fifteen thousand comments will have to be kind of answered and, and whatnot, just to get to the point where they can kind of tick that off and then officially ordain and you know, so, no, yeah. no one's no one's going to be writing rewriting well, OFTMA. This, well, well, this this is the question I want to really ask, and that's the crux of it. Is it a case of are we there to the point where AX has pretty much foundation, the core of AX is there? Then yes, um, vendors can take that on, Wi-Fi lights can take that on. There's not going to be much of a change. Everything else is just admin, or is there a risk that no, there could be a fundamental change potentially? Because there's an ongoing question. Um, I'm going to stop now because. This could lead on to another question that's been on Twitter sphere for a bit, but 
I'll stop there for you to answer the points I've just made, if that's all right. Sure. Yeah. So uh, there's. I've had a fundamental change in my philosophy. If you remember back to 2009 and before that, before 802.11n was released. So about 2007, a company, Belkin, which is a good company, uh, they knew that uh, task group N was working on 802.11n with MIMO, multiple input, multiple output. So Belkin came out, they were the very first ones that came out with three antennas on their access points and they came out with MIMO, uh, uh, client devices and the whole Wi-Fi experts community just tore them apart. They said, what are you doing? Or we're at least two years away from having a, a ratified standard on that. And so uh, people who buy your equipment, they're gonna have to throw it away when the standard's published. And the difference today, I believe, is that now Wi-Fi Alliance is on board uh, early. So what they've done is they've taken a draft that is pretty well voted through. So uh, version 6.0, it, it's it's gone through voting. It's got 97% approval now, or uh, I'm sorry, it was 85%, I'm sorry, 93% approval for draft six, 97% approval for 6.1. And they've taken that and they've made cross-vendor certification tests. So now the vendors, if they adhere to the Wi-Fi Alliance program, which that isn't even published, that won't be fully published till the end of the year. But as long as they stay within those, those uh, uh, narrow markers, the manufacturers should be able to make any corrections through firmware. And I've heard that promise in the old days too, uh, but today it, it's, uh, it's a little more true. I remember back when 802.11g came out and uh, everybody promised, yeah, we're just gonna do a firmware upgrade to your equipment. And it turned out, no, it's a forklift upgrade. So, uh, but I don't think it's like that anymore today. I think it's safe to start uh, believing in AX. However, remember that until AX has client devices support, and it, because AX, high efficiency, is most of the benefits come in high density situations, uh, I, until we get a, a good spread of uh, client devices using AX, I don't think you see a lot of the benefits. So if you're going to invest in the future and you have to do it now, then yeah, I'd say go ahead with the AX technology. But if you don't have to invest, I'd wait just a few more months till the full thing is fully ratified. That's one thing I've seen more this time around than before is that the clients seem to be adopting AX a lot quicker than um, access point manufacturers or uh, you know the home router manufacturers. It seems to be in the client space, you know, you've got the iPhones, um, I think Samsung do AX now, the Intel NIX uh, AX and any device that ships with a new Intel uh, motherboard will get the Intel NIC as well. Um, so that, that seems to be happening a lot quicker than uh, previous generations. Yeah, I think you're right about that, Christian. I think that people are, um, first of all, high density Wi-Fi is problematic with the existing um, um, standards that we have right now. And so people are anxious to start finding solutions for high density and very high density. So I would call high density really anything from um, an auditorium and very high density up to a, a, a stadium full of, uh, of uh, attendees and, and spectators. And those are the situations that 802.11ax solves best. Uh, there are a couple of things that are interesting for everybody and that's so the, uh, the new subcarrier width. Uh, now, 
subcarriers, which used to be 312.5 kilohertz wide, have been reduced in the same place that we used to have one 312.5 kilohertz subcarrier. We now have four. Uh, what is it? Um, the 72.125 kilohertz. I'd have to do the math to be sure, but now we get four subcarriers in the same distance. So we get way, way more bandwidth that way. So that affects everybody, even if it's not high density. Uh, that's useful. And the possibility of 1024 qualm modulation, uh, as long as you've got a 35 dB SNR, you should be able to support that 1024 qualm, which is 10 bits per symbol. So that's that's great. What's, what's your opinion on RFDNA? I'm glad you asked that. I think it was, does anybody remember <laughs> YMAX? Yeah. You remember YMAX? Yeah. What was that? Was that 10 years ago? Uh, it was 2007, I remember working on that, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I wrote a course for YMAX Forum, and it was uh, the, uh, the installer course for YMAX Forum at that time. And at that time, so 802.16, not 802.11, but 802.16 was the broadband wireless group, or the Metropolitan Area Networking Group. And 802.16 uh, had two different flavors. One of them was for fixed wireless, one of them was for mobile wireless. Both of those had OFDMA in those days. And I've talked, you know, for, for years about, you know, when is Wi-Fi going to catch up to, to uh, WiMAX back in the old days? And they're uh, the number of uh, subcarriers that they have. So for fixed wireless, it was 1024 subcarriers. And for mobile, it was 2048 subcarriers. And each group, you could set different size, different sets of the subcarriers for individual users. And it was usually... The, the ones that were out at the higher end of the spectrum would be for the uh, clients that were closer to the, to the devices, to the what we'd call access point. And um, the ones that were further away would get the lower end subcarriers, the frequencies that were lower, because of course they would propagate further than the higher frequencies. So, uh, and that worked great back then, 10 years ago, OFDMA was working great. I have no reason not to expect it to work great in uh, TGAX as well. I'm a little less sold on uh, Mumai, MIMO, uh, multi-user MIMO with eight by eights and higher. Um, the idea is great. I just think that there's a lot of, uh, you've got to coordinate the clients better and the manufacturers. So each manufacturer is going to have slightly different, uh, some will have four by four, some will have eight by eights. I even think I heard of one that's doing a 12 by 12. So I'm not sure how you harmonize all that. So, do, do you see OFDMA actually working in five gigahertz, or do you think it's we're only going to see it really working once we get six E, the six gigahertz? It it's kind of interesting. So there's another group in um, Standards Association 802.19, and I was thinking you guys might be interested in this specifically it's the coexistence group so you asked about um ofdma in five gigahertz mm -hmm. no problem uh and uh also in 2.4 gigahertz so but the problem for for you in uk and europe in general is getting sign off from etsy brand so i you're probably more familiar with i am the european telecommunications standards institute broadband radio access network group is kind of they play kind of the part of our fcc 
but for European Union, and they have an effect on, on a, a great number of nations around the world, and they also have an effect on 3GPP and 5G. So uh, they're very, 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 uh, they're more hands-on than our FCC. FCC says, look, here's six gigahertz, here's what you can do, here's what you can't do, have fun. But um, Etsy brand is a little more, okay, here's, here's the area we're talking about, and right down to the granular level of what's your listen before talk, are you going to be energy detect only, or is it going to be pre preamble detect, energy detect, and at NAG 72 dBm, they control all of that. So right. it's a little harder to get things through. Right now, it looks like six gigahertz in Etsy brand is good to go because everybody's compromised on uh, energy detect only listen before talk at uh, NAG 72 dBm. The problem is in five gigahertz where uh, there's, there's a lot of pushback from uh, 5G, 3GPP. And they say, look, we don't think we wanna do a preamble detect based on 802.11a because we're LTE focused. So the new specifications, which I, I have to look them up because I've got them written down, but I can't, haven't got them memorized. Um, I'll just do this. That's right, we, we forgive you. So <laughs> not having them well, memorized. <laughs> I'm disappointed. <laughs> okay, so here they are. So uh, for six gigahertz, the Etsy brand standard that you would be interested in, if you want to look these up, is EN301687. EN301687 at six gigahertz. The uh, And this is AX in six gigahertz. Is that the interface requirement? Repeat that. What was that? IR in the first requirement. You can, you can ignore that, it's fine. I'm sorry, Christian, I just didn't hear, understand the thing. It's, it's okay, I'm trying to look more intelligent than I actually am, sir. So, uh, <laughs> trying to sound more intelligent than you actually are, not look. You're in a podcast. Yeah, sound, that's right, yeah. You can edit that bit out. No, no. <laughs> so the standard for allowing TGAX or 802.11ax in five gigahertz, and this is in draft right now. So you've had five gigahertz for years, but things could change for you here because of this. That's going to be EN301893. And then the other one is in draft standard, and that's for 2.4 gigahertz 802.11ax. That'll be draft 17 and uh, TR103665. And I apologize profusely for not having those memorized. You are forgiven. I, I, <laughs> if you'd have asked, I'd have told you. <laughs> well, <they're all> <laughs> I should have just asked, exactly. You should have done, yeah. Um, but I, I don't know if you heard, but we got, um, so Etsy is, isn't the regulator, it's the standards organization in Europe, but Ofcom is our regulator and they, um, they released six gigahertz, 500 megahertz in, in six gigahertz two days ago, was it? Three days ago. Right. So that's, that, that's good news at least. Um, right. And given what you've just said in the six gigahertz announcement, uh, I think Nigel Bowden's going to have to get his pencil sharpened for his next white paper because he's usually <laughs> our, uh, our go-to resource in, in the Very spectrum space over here, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So that's a good point you brought up. Um, with, with, so the big thing about six gigahertz is, as you know, FCC has approved 1.2 gigahertz and uh, Ofcom has, has uh, approved 500 megahertz. The 500 megahertz is pretty much equivalent to what we would call the Uni-5 band in the FCC. 
and uh, it's pretty much set to go. There's just a couple of questions about where do we start that first channel? And it's pretty much been answered, but um, I don't have absolute uh, proof on this yet. Uh, so I think, I think you're gonna see the very first channel is going to be centered um, at, it'll be called channel 191, and uh, it'll be at 5.955, and that's for US and, and uh, UK. And so the, the top channel for the US would be channel 423, topping out at 7.115. Even though you've got, uh, you were given space by Ofcom at uh, 5.925 or 5.920, that first channel is gonna center up at 5.5 to give a little guard band and uh, with, with Uni4. And also it, it matches out better because you get uh, even division of uh, channels going forward. And it also, this is very interesting to me, I think. So in the UK, you'll now have enough space for, um, you'll have enough space in that six gigahertz range for 360 megahertz wide channels or one 320 megahertz wide channel. And I know I hear this all the time, you know, silly to bond these channels together, you're just using up all your channel space. Well, that's true if you have limited channel space, like in five gigahertz, but with six gigahertz, sky's the limit. And everybody says, well, yeah, that's way more bandwidth than we're gonna need. It is today, but when you have this new bandwidth, now the sky is the limit. People in imaginations are gonna start running wild and look what we are and do. AR is, yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say, this, this is always one question that I had and it's never really been answered. In six gigahertz, if you got rid of the uh, legacy preambles and stuff like that and you just have pure OFDMA, why wouldn't you go for a massive channel? Why would you bother with 20 megahertz or anything? You'd just go for the, the biggest channel you could get, wouldn't you? Yep, so you know what everybody is saying in IEEE, they're saying that uh, because in the US, we'll get 58 20 megahertz channels, or 2840s or 1480s. And so now the tagline in uh, IEEE is 80s are the new 20s. And why wouldn't you? You know, Because there's just plenty of space. Now, what kind of applications can you run over? The first thing that pops up to, into mind is uh, uh, 3D VR. And uh, I heard one of the FCC commissioners. So these guys are, are smart. And you can tell they're thinking, so this is during COVID. And he says, I can imagine myself putting on a VR helmet and, uh, and operating a mobile remote uh, grocery picker. And I can go up to the vegetables and I can pick through the vegetables and pick the one I, I think looks the freshest, drop it in my cart and go to the checkout stand. But I think a better uh, idea for these wide channels is um, in Austin, Texas, uh, one of the schools down there sent 100 school buses out into economically deprived neighborhoods and had the buses acting as Wi-Fi hotspots. So they were connected by 4G and then Wi-Fi in the communities. Now, if you had a 320 megahertz, six gigahertz band backhaul, you could support super speeds with a, a school bus or another device or even a, a self autonomous uh, uh, vehicle of some type, just drive it out to a neighborhood, have it parked there, offer Wi-Fi services to all the school kids in that area, 
uh, and the cost for that compared to dragging out fiber optic lines mm -hmm. to that neighborhood, amazingly inexpensive. And these are the kinds of new thinking that are, I believe are gonna happen with the, uh, this new resource, six gigahertz. And it's gonna be great for the, for the whole world. Of course, everybody's gotta start adopting it. And there's a lot of work to do yet, but we're talking months now, not years away, so. With the IEEE, just to go back to the IEEE, sure, yep. they're not developing anything specific to run on six gigahertz either. They're developing AX, which will be used on pretty much two point four five gig and six. So they're not they're not making any specific tweaks or changes to the protocol standard itself to operate on six gig. So it's kind of interesting. Alan. First of all, it's it's completely uh, uh, compatible with six gigahertz. And uh, you know, guys, if you if you're interested in this, and this isn't a plug, but uh, on my uh, website, wirelesstrainingsolutions.com. Click on the blogs and go scroll on down to you see my blogs called FutureFi. And uh, in chapter two is where, I think it's chapter two where I pointed out this, what I call the smoking gun. Just scroll down to the smoking gun. And the only way that I, I realized that uh, six gigahertz, uh, I'm sorry, TGAX was gonna support six gigahertz, there was a little tiny notation in one of the meetings where they had requested a new PAR, that's project authorization request, and they, they needed to change their PAR to now expand and cover from one gigahertz to 7.125 gigahertz. And that's really the only specific mention of going to six gigahertz band. But now when you look into the standard, here's where you're gonna see, not so much just in TGAX, but in RevMD. So, um, <laughs> Sorry, uh, it's, it's a lot of acronyms, but there's another group in 802 uh, 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 Standards Association, uh, 802.11, and we talk about AX and N and all that, but there's one called M, and that's the maintenance group, and their job is to take all these little standards, and this is another reason why it takes so long, all these little standards, all they have all these clauses, paragraphs that have to be intertwined into the main 802.11 standard. The main standard today is called 802.11.2016. It was originally, when it was in committee being worked on, it was called 802.11.mc, so C version of the mainnet mm -hmm. group. We're now working on 802.11.md, and that should be out this December, uh, 2020. Oh, wow. And so it'll, it, from there on out, it will be called 802.11.2020. And that's the one that ties all this stuff together. And here's the big picture. So you've got all of these little working groups like uh, 802.11AD and 802.11AC. And every little feature that was invented for one of these groups, maybe they don't use that. I mean, maybe when you're in 60 gigahertz, you don't really use the, the tunnel discovery process that they developed in 802.11AD. Guess who's gonna use that? That's gonna be our 802.11AX because you think about this, when, when you bring up a, a client device and it's gonna scan all the channels in 2.4 gigahertz, and I don't mean one, six, and 11, I mean one, two, three, four, five, all the way up to 13, 14, depending on your regulatory uh, area. So then it's going to scan into the five gigahertz, go through all those, it's looking for beacons or sending probe requests, looking for SSIDs that it wishes to join constructing a, a table, 
when it gets through all those channels, it looks at the table, see which one had the best characteristics, tunes back to that channel, and then starts its uh, uh, authentication uh, sequence followed by association sequence. So now, let's say that you have to stay on each one of those channels at least a beacon interval, call it, uh, let's say, 125 uh, milliseconds. And you do that for all of those channels. Now you just got 58 more channels in the US or I think 24 new channels in the UK. How long does it take for your client to first get associated? So what we see coming, you will still be able to do the full discovery process by scanning through all these uh, channels looking for um, advertisements. Or you can set it up as a wireless LAN engineer. You can design your six gigahertz network for, for instance, okay, I'm going to have a, a QoS uh, SSID and it'll be on six gigahertz, but we're going to advertise it in beacons over on five gigahertz use of, using the tunnel discovery process that was created in 802.11 AD. So all of these things, this is why... It's Christian's favorite thing. They're laughing because I told them about this the other week and no, nobody <laughs> believed me. They thought I'm making it up. It wasn't that. It was just me <laughs> oh, questioning it. It was just questioning it. It was a prove it, Christian. And you were like, oh, I read it somewhere, but I can't remember where. You're like, so unhelpful. <laughs> Rick's on in a couple of weeks. Yeah. 11 AD is the one that uh, brought that to us. So that's that's great. So, um, Sorry, I get kind of long-winded. I love this stuff, you know. I no, think that's that, great. It all ties together, and it, for me, I'm a I'm a very visual learner. I don't have the math background, so I have to see it, and I have to hear people talking about it. I have to see them explaining it. Then, then it kind of sets in my mind. Then I can go explain it to others, which is what I I love to do more than anything is. So, but, so the the hot topic question, right? Six gigahertz AX. Does it have all the legacy features? I'll say features like preamble and all that kind of stuff, or yeah, is that going to be rescinded? I bet it does. So, so AX is only one clause inside of uh, 802.11.22. It'll be actually 2024 before AX makes it in. Okay. So it's only part of it. So it's the full 802.11 standard that has all the legacy stuff. The AX stuff does not have any of the legacy stuff in. Does that make sense? We'll clarify that because I guess what I'm, what, what I think Christian's saying and what I would say is that in six gig, in six you gig. still have a six megabits per second preamble. Yes or no? Okay, and and here's here's something that uh, I'm not sure is clear to everybody. Did you know that uh, basic rates uh, in even in AC? Another question I have. Okay, so uh, just touch on a little bit, but 802.11 AC has defined within the current standard right now, uh, it has a uh, basic VHT MCS set. 802.11 N has a basic HT MCS set, but neither one of these can be used unless you're in a greenfield environment. Now we're talking. Because I've always oh, had this. I've argued about this before. Oh, it's, oh, it's not, not argue. It's, it's just a question of. of um, I've tweeted this out and I've said, "How the fucking hell? Excuse my language, but how the hell can I create a greenfield site if I don't want any A clients, G clients, even N clients? I just want AC clients, and mm -hmm. I may even just want AX clients, right? That's preach. How, 
that's preach. That's what I want, right? I want a pure green field site because that's what I have access to. My clients, yep. I'm in control of 100%. Yeah, yep. I'm still restricted by the protocol to support, firmware. Yeah, to support six megahertz per second and 50. And so my question, which would have been beacons even being sent out the maximum of 54 megabits per second, I can't send a beacon at any MCS rate, for example. But, so I guess the question I have is, why can't I do this? Why can't I have a pure greenfield site where I can actually stitch all of the legacy preamble and legacy beacon rates and just go with what I want because I have control of my client environment and I can specify the greenfield standard that I want to operate at. So this is in, in your 802.11.2016 standard, and I have to look at my notes again, under clause 10.26.3. That's the one you want to read, clause 10.26.3. And that talks about uh, the protection mechanisms for, and this is for HT, 802.11n. So if you go in there, you'll see that if you could satisfy inside of the, um, so it, there's, there's two fields, HT protection and non-greenfield HT stations present. And both of those fields are in the HT operation element. And those are contained in beacons and probe responses. Yeah, beacons and probe responses. So if you go into those fields, and you've got a one bit for uh, non-greenfield HT station present, yes, then you can't use the uh, HT, the basic HT MCS rates. So that's the issue. So when we detect any clients, any devices in the area, so this goes right back to, remember the old days of uh, 802.11G, when an 802.11B guy would come into the area, the 802.11G access point would signal out with ERP uh, field that says non-ERP station present, yes or no. And if it said yes, then we went into RTS, CTS. But you, but you, there's no way to override that. There's no it's way to say. It's fault. I don't care. There's no way no, to override it. There's one way to override it. Move to six gigahertz, and there right. will be no legacy clients to kick on that that protection bit. Which is what we will have for AX in six gigahertz. So we won't have to have. So we will legacy have a, stuff. Yeah. Right. So you're saying that we won't have. Legacy yes. beacon oh. rates. We want to have legacy points. We can actually have greenfill in six gig, and it's going to be AX greenfill. Yes. And the final thing would be the preamble is what? The preamble will be an HE greenfield preamble, which is what sent at what megabits per second? Is it six megabits per second, or is it five? What is it? Is it MCS six megabits per second? Well, uh, I think, so when you get to MCS, isn't the lowest 802.11n rate 6.5? Yeah. And I'd have to look at the lowest 802.11ax rate on my MCS chart. If you got an MCS chart nah. handy. And, and, well, I, I'm sorry, I didn't think MCS. 8.1. I didn't think MCS rates were the same as preamble rates. Because I thought MCS rates were data oh. rates, not preamble rates. So have I got that wrong? But that's, that's mixed mode, isn't it? So it's the argument we had a while back. I think six gigahertz, the MCS, the lowest MCS rate should be the preamble rate too. That's a good question now. I'm, I need to write that down and check. But the, but the, the lowest MCS rate is still BPS gate, MCS zero. I'm just looking at my chart now, which is 8.1 megabit yeah. per second. But, uh, but uh, again, the data rates. 
Right, but I think the, so the data rates and the preamble rates were based on the technology. So that's why one megabit per second is 2.4 gigahertz, six megabits per second is five uh, gigahertz, and six gigahertz, I think will be whatever the lowest MCS rate that's, because you're gonna be going to an H, uh, a basic HE MCS set in six gigahertz. Yes. And whatever, I believe it's going to be that lowest rate. Uh, Christian, you said 8.1? 8.1, yeah. Cool. But I have, to, I have to check it, but I believe that's going to be the case. Cool. I mean, I guess for me, the, the, the reason why I ask it is there's been many conversations about this. And also, uh, again, as well, it's a case of being able to utilize the new frequency to improve efficiency, uh, not have to propagate further at that low speeds to try and trick cell size that kind of stuff to to basically mean you know we don't have to rely on the old crap within the 802.11 standard that was a hindrance in terms of you know minimizing interference back offs and, and everything else but actually allow us to kind of be more efficient faster and i say efficient of our airtime use so having a preamble that can kind of maybe go a little bit quicker and not necessarily go at six megabits per second is a good thing because the preamble is the is the, is the kind of the crux of synchronization and, and, and tuning and whatnot to be able to I guess understand well what's coming next and what am I going to send at what date rate so to speak and well how long I need to be quiet for if I can't demodulate the whole uh, data frame that's been sent after that. For me I felt that six gigahertz would give us the opportunity to turn around and go, do you know what? we don't need to have a six megabits per second preamble propagate so far that causes all of these clients far away to back off. Yep. We could actually shrink that cell slightly further and actually have more efficiency with our airtime in, in smaller confined areas because I think that's where certainly for high density networks is going to be very beneficial. So that's why I was kind of asking the question, what is six gig going to bring us in terms of preamble and, and you know, um, and so yeah, it's, that's it's where I'm coming from, I guess. The P PLCP uh, header, uh, the whole thing is going to be set out, not just the preamble, but the, the whole PLCP header is going to go out probably at that basic rate. That's great. For that fundamental rate, I guess. Yeah. I think so. So think this is my belief. I don't have, I can't, I can't point to any proof where I've seen that written down. Uh, your question on that kind of, I think it's a good question that I'd like to dig in and uh, I took a few notes here. Um, it's, it's a question a lot of us have had, and the other one is in six gigahertz, is it gonna be OFDMA only? Because AX, as it is, obviously supports OFDM. So in six gigahertz, are we just gonna see OFDMA, or we're gonna see OFDM, or is it just gonna be whatever the client drivers decide to support because they're the lowest common denominator? So I believe it's going to be OFDM, Normally, OFDMA, when it's, uh, there's a need for it to be supported, it'll still be the uh, new OFDMA subcarrier sizes. Okay. But um, the difference here is whether or not you devote the whole 20 megahertz wide channel to a, a single user, right? Or if you break it up into resource units and you say- but, but Here's the question, right? Just to interject, does it matter when we're in six gig? No. Does it, oh, does no, it, does if, the it? Sub -carriers, if the subcarriers are the same size, then you can 
demodulate everything. It's it's fine, isn't it? This is, I guess, what I'm saying. You don't have to worry about smaller resource units to support, say, say, say VoIP frames anymore when we've got a new, you know, new band that's 6 gigahertz, which has got, I guess, 500 megahertz in the UK and, what is it, 1,200 in the US? Yeah. So well, do we do we really do we really need... It's a bit like um, IP version 6 solving the IP version 4 problem when we're running out of IP space, well, right? So no, I, a, I disagree with that because... Why? Just because there's no because just because there's no demand for it now doesn't mean there's not going to be any demand for it in the future. I and, you know, every six on, has been out for years and it's not really no no. But I think because NAT think solves it's... the problem. Yeah, so six gigahertz is your NAT equivalent is what I'm getting at. You didn't let me finish. So <laughs> does, does your argument? Does, does my argument now yeah. win? Because I said no, it doesn't. Well, IP version six was the holy grail touted because we're running out of IP space on the internet. However. NAT was doing a good enough job that meant that IP version six really wasn't necessary. And to me, that's what OFDMA sounds like. That it's IP version six, but actually six gigahertz than that equivalent, which basically says we've got all this extra bandwidth for all these extra channels, potentially this new frequency. Do we need to care about OFDMA? Do we just carry on with OFDM and just be done with it? And we've got all these extra channels. Well, one, one of, yes. When when I first got into Wi-Fi, uh, the guy who I took over said. We don't need five gigahertz. There's enough spectrum in 2.4, <laughs> right? And we had sites until about 18 months ago, which were 2.4 gigahertz only. There were five gigahertz radios. No antenna plugged into them, which I won't <laughs> even get into. Um, so, but it's you know the difference in antenna size between five gigahertz and six gigahertz isn't that much. And clients can introduce six gigahertz onto devices. I won't say relatively easily because I don't I don't know the amount of technology that goes into these things but if the if a client can spot six gigahertz five gigahertz and 2.4 they're going to do that and if the clients are going to be steered onto six gigahertz then clients are going to use six gigahertz as quickly as that frequency is available and as quickly as a chipset manufacturers start making the chips i was going to say do you, do you not see mobile devices just getting rid of the 2.4 and just having five and six because of battery life that's not that's not what i'm saying i don't don't know to be honest with you but i think there's going to be a waterfall of devices hitting six gigahertz as soon as there's uh you know intel start making chips broadcom marvel all the all the chipset manufacturers when they start making them clients will just jump and and device adoption rates are so fast these days you know as soon as apple bring out a new phone as soon as samsung bring out a new phone as soon as intel bring out a new chipset clients move on to them people move on to them people start buying them devices I'm just saying, I don't think OFDM will necessarily be needed if we've got 6 gig because 6 gig like, itself solves the problem, which is what OFDM is trying, OFDMA is trying to fix, which is being able to say, let, let's not give 20 megahertz wide spectrum to transmit just a single data frame, right? That's what it's basically trying to do. It's trying to be more efficient. It would have been easier to just turn around and say, well, let's just divvy that up and say, let's just operate within a 10 megahertz wide. Yeah. Instead of trying to do OFDM and be clever. That would be my, my suggestion. But, just but then, then then you look at the, you know, the very high density environments that Rick alluded to earlier, you know, the stadiums and stuff like that, when you've got tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people in such a small space, if you can reuse all that frequency, that 1.2 gigahertz to serve all those clients with a decent level of service, then all that spectrum is going to be used and you're going to be sitting back relaxing going, all that spectrum is used, I'm happy. But they're doing spectrum, sorry, they're doing stadium design now successfully, which is 2.4 and 
five gig and an element of cellular handoff as well. Yeah, but people want more. Well, they, and they're going to get it six gig. They could get more, but I just don't. I'm just saying, OFDMA to me sounds like it's the IP version six that is just one of these things that possibly won't get adopted. That's what I'm saying. I'll, I'll, I'll let I'll let Rick speak in a minute, but this oh. sort of to me is the, <laughs> the benefit of six gigahertz and OFDMA is that you can you know we've 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 had the 20 megahertz channels. We've been squeezing everything into these small channels. If you move to OFDMA and clients can demodulate OFDMA because the subcarriers are the same size, then you can go to these big channels and start chopping that frequency up within the big channels a lot easier than you could do previously. But, but isn't the overheads, isn't the management and synchronization overhead more of an issue than just... That's a, that's a different conversation, I think, isn't it? Right. How OFDMA works. That's a slightly exactly conversation, but yeah. it, it is part of it. So the, the beautiful thing about OFDMA is that you don't have to decide. It's going to decide on a per transmission opportunity uh, interval. And the access point is going to say, okay, I, I've got one client device who's trying to, uh, who, who I have to communicate to. And so I'm going to use the entire 20 megahertz wide channel. But on the next transmission opportunity, you know, I've got four clients. One of them's got a big data file transfer going. Two of them have uh, a voice and uh, one of them has a video stream. So I might chop up, take those resource units, do uh, uh, 26 tones on one, 52 on two, and what's that leave? 106 on the other one. So get 106 tone resource unit to the uh, FTP session, two 52 tone resource units applied to the client device that I'm trying to send uh, the video streams and that, or voice streams, probably make those both 26s and then the video stream would be a 52 resource unit. But, and then on the next one, we go back to, it looks like pure OFDM. Because it's- isn't, it, it isn't the problem that there's no defined, like this is when that should happen. And so it, it's difficult to design or, or learn how to deploy networks when you can't, rely on that happening you know like 3gpp's use of rfdma um and you know 5g and i guess wimax to a to a point they've got more control over the clients and the access point than in 802.11 there's a negotiation and all of that is part of 802.11 e qos and uh you know that that's been around since 2005 wasn't really implemented till 2009 with 802.11n, but a lot of those negotiations, uh, it's already in the standard. So devices that are, are trying to apply for uh, access for uh, different quality of service levels, uh, that's built in. And so that's the part that now OFDMA can say, instead of one user needing a, um, uh, ACVO and another user using ACVE. Uh, now we can do this automatically and apply resource. And with one transmission opportunity, one uh, set of symbols, we're hitting all of these users. And they can come back to us too because you've got these subcarriers, you've got these subcarriers, you've got these. You can all transmit at the same time. You're not going to corrupt each other's transmissions. And it happens transparently so that you don't have to configure or design for it sorry Dan. yeah so but but because that 
because that trigger isn't in the standard, it's not like once you get to X utilization, then OFTMA kicks in. It, do, you, do you know what I mean? In, in terms of like knowing, like if, if you had, if you had control over the client and you could say, oh. always, always ask for OFDMA. And then you could set your AP to say, always offer OFDMA if anyone asks for it. Do you know what I mean? Like there's some level of understanding what's happening there. Whereas it feels like at the moment, what we've got is, oh yeah, you've bought your Wi-Fi six, you know, APs. Um, Good luck. (laughs) You know, they'll do it. They'll, they'll do it when they need to. And then finding that actually they're not doing that when they need to. So I think there's a lot of room in there for error. Uh, But I do think that the client devices already understand 802.11e. And they already understand that that when they contend for not just the ability to transmit a single frame, but to transmit for a transmission opportunity, an interval of time, it's the client who knows, here's what I'm trying to send. And we negotiate that with the access point. And the access point on the next transmission opportunity has knowledge of all the clients that at that time want to transmit to it. And it assigns the resource units uh, on a transmission opportunity period. So like frame by frame basis, except it's for multiple frames on multiple users. And I, this, yeah. this, this might, it's already are, we talking DC, are we talking DCF here? That might, that might be a stupid question. But. No, it's HCF. Okay. It's going to be HCF, which is an extension. HCF. So it'll be HCCA. Um, Wi-Fi multimedia, WMM. So so things like Cisco Fastlane, where there is a relationship between client and infrastructure, network infrastructure, where effectively, you know, through an MDM, you're able to say these applications always have, you know, priority. So if it's not one of these few applications, don't apply the QoS to it. W- will that have an impact in, in terms of OFDMA? Uh, good question. So uh, again, a lot of this stuff, I'm not sure. I haven't seen it in practice. Here's my yeah. thinking on it. If it's not uh, QoS, then it's just standard ECF and that's going to be OFDM. Okay. I, I just I just want to say it feels like we're grilling you, but we're, we're not. It's, uh, <laughs> we're just trying to understand. Yeah, yeah. But that, <laughs> yeah. that, that, the, the reason I asked around PCF and DCF is because HCF wasn't, it wasn't really implemented by client vendors or access point vendors was it and do you think this is going to i guess if we just ignore five gigahertz and 2.4 because they've got legacy clients and we've got to sort of cater to the lowest common denominator if we think about six gigahertz do you think hcf um is gonna make a comeback which will enable ofdma to work more efficiently uh so i think it's already in there working every time you aggregate frames you're using basically HCF, you're using frame aggregation, AMPDUs and AMSDUs, they're all part of 802.11e QoS, and that's all part of Wi-Fi Multimedia. Wi-Fi Multimedia is just the Wi-Fi Alliance certification for 802.11e QoS. So that's already in use. How it gets applied onto 802.11ax, you know, in six gigahertz and other bands, it's in the standard. Uh, that's a lot of reading that I haven't come across yet. I can't, I can't say that there's anything specific in AX that 
has more to do with uh, the QoS mechanisms. Well, I guess it's like you said, it's a, it's a bigger picture. If, if using HCF enables you to trigger frames and trigger RFDMA more efficiently, then surely that's the most sensible way of doing it. Yeah, it's all, all with the access categories and uh, how it's applied. Now, the, th the brains on the access point, the processors have to be much, much faster. They have to be able to, but think what they're doing with uh, multi-user MIMO. They're taking spatial streams and devoting those to individual users, both on the upbound and downbound direction too. So, uh, and that's all pretty much kind of new technology, whereas OFDMA and 802.11e have been around a while. So again, we won't know. And, and I like your idea about in, inside of a football stadium. Right now, you may have, what, 100,000 uh, uh, attendees. And mostly, what are they doing most of the time as far as data? Not, not phone, but they're doing text. Yeah. And they might be sharing of, uh, they might be Uploading. sharing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they're getting uh, operating system updates downbound. Uh, but that's the kind of stuff they're doing. What if they, there was no limitations to the bandwidth? What if they could actually, you know, instead of going to the stadium because of COVID, you put your phone in your seat and you are VR right into your seat in the stadium and you've got uh, a two millisecond latency with, um, you know, uh, a gigabit of actual throughput, not just connection speed. What, what can you do with that? Well, you, you can beam me up, Scotty, you know. Mm. Sounds good. I mean, yeah. though, that would that would never be accepted because then, I mean, only during a pandemic it would work and you'd still get charged. Yeah. But <laughs> you'd ruin the atmosphere with these great ideas right. of yours. I, 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 I remember, I remember during the uh, World Cup, um, it was one of the last games England played where we were, we were penalties, and I was I had to get off a bus and walk to work, and I was watching it on my phone. And my stream was about five minutes later than the houses are walking past. So I'd be walking down the street and just like, just, everyone would go, yeah, I go, well, what's going on? And I'd walk about 10 minutes down the road and finally see a goal. I'd go, yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing, isn't it? Latency for wireless networks, I think, is just as, just as critical I, as bandwidth. And I think sometimes it's more, it's more important, I think, than data throughput speeds, let's be honest. Um, so I think. The IEEE or anybody can design a protocol that could be guaranteeing, you know, sub 10 second, sub 10 second, sub 10 millisecond latency as a, as a guarantee. I think that's just game over. And I think that's where Wi Fi wants to be or wireless communications works. Well, I say Wi Fi because wireless communications is obviously a broader term, which means cellular, LTE, and, and they can probably do that. Darling. So, um, so, that's, so for me, um, you know, so I'd rather see a focus on that, but I guess it's more difficult to do, right? To get latency. Well, yeah, because you've got other parts in the, in the network connecting. Uh, a, a personal experience I have with latency right now because of the pan pandemic, I can no longer get together with my, my buddies to play guitars. And so we try to play guitars over Zoom. And it's better than not doing it at all, because at least you keep your fingers loose. But as you're playing along, there's always, you know, you're doing fine, but your, your, uh, your lead player is yeah. 50 milliseconds behind you. That doesn't seem like much, except you're always wait, stopping and waiting for him to catch up, and then you play a little more, and it's just not workable. Uh, just play faster and better. <laughs> faster and better. <laughs> I was going to say, you have it even with um, like Bluetooth 
Bluetooth, yeah. Like headphones. You know, the, the latency is too much. I've plugged yeah. in a wired no, yeah, yeah, cable yeah. into my laptop because of the latency with the Bluetooth. It's ridiculous. Mm. And it even sort of things in, in I don't know if you guys saw um, take that did a Zoom kind of conference as did. <laughs> I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't see that, Alan. No. Hang on. I, I can edit that out. Edit out. I didn't mean take that. I meant as in um, what's his name? Um, the rapper that did the Nirvana set. What's his name? Um, oh, the tattoos all over his face. Um, what's his name? Post no, Malone. Mean. Post Malone. So Post Malone did with the. I'm gonna say Gordon Lightfoot. Hey. Post Malone wasn't even born when Nirvana were around. No. <laughs> Post Malone did. Take that. We know you, we know you were talking about take that. I mean, oh, come I on. Be cool Post Malone doing the Nirvana set. Okay. <laughs> take that did a live Zoom set. Now, to be honest with you, it was pre-recorded at the end of the day. But I think the, uh, I don't know if the Nirvana set that was done by Post Malone was, but they did it virtual um, from Zoom with each three different, artists playing the instruments and it all kind of was in sync there wasn't any latency at all but huh. i just, but i wonder i don't know if, i i was in the impression it was live and the fact that it was live was um it worked there wasn't any of this latency there wasn't any of this bad but, connection and stuff like this yeah, so with the with, with the airpods you don't Probably notice the latency <laughs> because apple do something clever where they delay the video stream on the device for the known latency of bluetooth mm. so that that's that's why they're always in sync but then when i tried to use my airpods as a uh, a, a foldback system for live you know playing the guitar you can't do it because the latency is too long on the bluetooth radio um and i so thought I'll, I'll oh Apple, apple's airpods are so good because there's no latency the the video is perfect but actually it's not it's really bad Hmm. Alan, I take that latency was about twenty years. That's why you got <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that joke was about twenty minutes as well, wasn't it? That the <laughs> you wouldn't shut up every time you try speaking. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. So, um, here's the thing, right? Because obviously we've gone off on a tangent, and we've, it's been a great topic. I, I've really enjoyed this actually talking about FDMA, six gig, and, and various other things. We've kind of skirted around. Uh, I, again, bring it back to IEEE, Rick. Um, how does uh, one question I have is how does how do you get how does the IEEE kind of get started with a protocol? As in, let's say for example, I've come up with a great idea for a protocol and I want to implement. It's called Talk Before Listen, and it's going to be A O two dot whatever. How does the IEEE? Kind of... That's what you do now. Eight hundred two eleven Allen. Eight hundred two eleven AB. ALAN. It's talk before I listen. <laughs> engage brain. No, engage mouth Take before that. brain. <laughs> but I guess if I was to, I've always wondered when AX came out. It was like, okay, cool. Then you've got BE. You've got sorry, AD, BE, and you've got all these other protocols that are in the pipeline surely there's someone right now sat there thinking right we need to start working on the next generation which is probably going to come out in 2030 something right the IEEE are obviously starting to work on stuff like this now for me it's a case of how does someone get together with um, an idea or a 
a driver of sorts, whether it's business technical, go to the IEEE and say, we need to start working on this because it's going to take us so many years to develop and fine tune. And we want to be ready because it's the next iteration. Like, I don't know. I guess for me, how does the IEEE kind of does it start? Does it process? start with an idea, or does it start with a problem that you're trying to fix? Uh, a little of both. Sometimes it's organic and it grows out of the the other work you're doing. So other other committees, as they're going along, they realize, hey, you know, we could do this, or we should stop doing this, and then it'll kind of grow from there. But let's say that, like your idea, Alan. So your talk, your TBL protocol that you think. <laughs> Uh, an excellent addition to Wi-Fi. So normally, or many times, you would approach the 802.11, you would go to a plenary meeting, anybody can buy a ticket and go and speak and treat, be treated as if you're everything except you can't vote on the parts that require membership voting. And you would probably ask for a presentation time during WING, and WING is WNG, Wireless Next Generation. And there's usually at least one meeting or two meetings during the plenary session. So you would go and you would give your presentation to the group that's in the uh, wing standing committee. And uh, if there was some interest, then you and the others who were interested in that would put out a, a CFI. And a CFI is a call for interest. Call for interest is just a document. It goes out to all the membership, anybody who's interested. Are you interested in this? Well, let's get together. And if enough of you show interest, then you can apply uh, to the to the uh, committee, the working group uh, body, 802.11, and say, um, we would like to either form a study group, or sometimes you don't have enough interest after the call for interest, and you want to generate some more interest, so you form a topic interest group. That's a TIG. So a TIG is, you know, let's get together. We need more people, uh, more warm bodies to help with the work. But if you have enough to start with right off the CFI, you form your study group. And the study group has a job to do. And that is that they have to create two documents. And the first document is the PAR. That's the project authorization request. The other document is the five Cs. Five Cs are five criteria for uh, standardization development. And the five criteria it has to meet, uh, is it economically feasible? Do we need it? Things like that. So those are the five steps. So you create that, that document and the PAR, Project Authorization Request, says, here's our idea. Here's why it is perfect for 802.11. Here's why it's needed. And here's our plan to go forward. You submit that to the working group. If they approve and you get your PAR, now you're an official task group, a TG. And you'll get that's when you get your letters to go after your TG. So now you're 802.11. Let's see, you would be 802.11 DG. <laughs> with, with your TBL would now be assigned as task group BG because we're already down to 802.11 BE and BF. Those have been assigned. Next one in line would be BG. Really? So, so now you go to work, you create a draft, and the draft will go through the sub one versions, then you get to version one, maybe you have a vote and you have a vote with just your uh, members, those who are in your group. And you keep going through that all the way up until you're ready to present it to the working group. And if they approve that, then you go forward and it goes to the different step. By the way, if you wanna see those exact steps, uh, just search on uh, 802.11 timelines 
and that's that's uh, go to that link and you'll see all of these steps right across the top. Plus, you see the current state of all the task groups that are in process. So how do you actually physically do this in terms of you create, you know, obviously someone's had to do this in a lab. Someone's had to physically write code in order for chipsets to act the way the protocol is supposed to act. Right. How does that process, that not the administrative stuff of being kind of pars and the task groups, etc., but in terms of the actual physicalities of doing the actual coding and putting it physically together to write to create a physical standard that is then tested and verified to understand does it solve a problem or does it provide super duper efficiencies how does that actually uh, occur within the IEEE is what I'm really interested in so just to be clear nowhere in the standard do you have the actual programming code that's left to the manufacturers except for the exception is the MIBs so the management information based information that that coding well, is in there. Go so, ahead. So what I'll say is that the protocol, the eight hundred eleven protocol has a frame header. Um, yeah. It has, uh, Christ, it's it, the frame itself is built based upon the frame type, whether it's a data frame, control frame, or a uh, <laughs> so the management frame. <laughs> so the point is, it's structured, yeah. So it's got whatever. It, however, it's structured. Honestly, I've been drinking too many beers now to really give a shit about what the frame is, okay, and the bite size and stuff. But my point is that the, even the intricacies that who's writing, who's actually creating what the protocol looks like from a frame perspective to then build upon that to be able to create, you know, who, I guess you could argue the case of um, who started off thinking, like, we've created a management frame, created a control frame. Oh, I'm going to create a data frame. And they kind of formulated these frame types and they made it all kind of work in some sort of lab and made sure that it worked with modulation techniques, but they were able to get to capture these data packets between two devices that were transmitting wirelessly and go, wicked, we've got G, we've got A, we've got B, N, so on and so forth. How does someone get to that point? So it's a long, slow process. And the people that were attracted to this, many of them have a vested interest. Many of them work for companies that want to sell their equipment or they want to build this equipment. So they've got the labs, they're the ones who do the testing, but these individuals, they come when they're at uh, IEEE, they represent only themselves. And they go to these meetings and the meetings can any be anywhere from a small breakout room with five or 10 people in them, all the way up to the big popular ones like uh, uh, 802.11ax, which may have 300 people in there. Okay, and so they, they'll have a series of presentations and somebody will go up and say, here's how we think we should do this. Oh, by the way, 802.11, uh, well, TGAX is kind of broken out into two separate groups. That's the PHI and the MAC. So you've got two groups. You've got one group of people working on the frame structures and interactions at layer two, and you've got a whole different group working at the, at the radio level and the physical layer. So those are two groups that understand that. The people that are attracted to PHI are people who do that kind of work. They're, uh, component level engineers and scientists, and the people who work at layer two are more uh, oriented with frame uh, interactions. So would, so would they be the ones to drive the next protocol? Would they be the ones, so the chips and manufacturers, for example, or- Maybe, yes. So they're the ones that come to the IEEE and say, hey, look, we've been working on something, but we need to standardize it so that everyone can adopt it. And they, I guess, put their findings to the IEEE, 
the ownership and they look at it and go, yeah, this has got legs, this has got merit. What we need to do is go through our process to kind of define it, standardize it, test it. And then we they would present at wing at yeah, next generation. And if there's interest, then CFI, TIG, SG, TG, draft, uh, standards. But, but I guess you don't have to come up with the idea either, do you? You don't have to do the legwork. You could just say, oh, OCMA, that's worked well in Wiremax. Let's try adopt that in wireless. Or you can say, target work time, for example, that's from Halo. Someone's done the legwork. Let's see how it acts uh, under 802.11ax. Yeah, that's true. So 802.16, there's, that's still a, a viable working group, and they're still working on things. It's not WiMAC anymore. They still have the 802.16 standard. And um, so some members of that may drop into, they may be attracted at wing and say, you know what, we've been working on this protocol. It's been dormant. Let's, let's port it over to 802.11. What do you think? Does anybody think that's a good idea? Get a couple of hands raised. Next thing you know, you've got a, a task group. So I've I've got one. Can I just pitch it to you now quickly? Rick? <laughs> I've got a, I've got I've got an idea. Uh, and I say I've got an idea. I've basically nicked it from Cisco and Apple, which is part of their proprietary. We just work together. We're friends. We're not going to share this with anyone else. So <clears throat> Cisco and Apple do this thing where when a Apple device connects to associates to a cisco ap the apple device will give all of the information it's gleaned from all the channels it's scanned and give it to that access point as part of the Ooh, i think it's the the 802.11k beacon report there's like an extra bit that they've added on a neighbor um, report yeah but it but it it's just added on to that so it's basically saying these are all the APs I can see as the iOS device. So here are the RSSI, you know, whatever, everything I can see from here. It's a really good way to get that info from iOS devices, but it's only Cisco that can do it. So could I turn up to a, to a wing? And, and, and they also do the other way around. So if there's a, if there's a particular reason why a, an iOS device disassociates from a Cisco, then the AP will get that information as well. So whether it was someone turned off the device or whatever, you know, it will, it will actually give that information back to the network so that the network has knowledge of that. Now, obviously there's no easy way of getting RSSI data off of a, an iOS device. And this is the way that they do it for Cisco. So could I turn up to a, to a, a, is it a WINGS, did you say? Well, WING is just a standing committee. That's the, yeah. WNG stands for Wireless Next Generation Standing okay. Committee. And they, ha they have presentation slots. You could absolutely, Dan, take your idea to WING and say, <laughs> I think this is a great idea. Does anybody else think it's a great idea? And they'll either say, we're already doing that in K, yeah. or we're uh, thinking about doing that in uh, a, a, an evolution of K, or great idea. Let's let's get together and talk, and let's see if we can uh, form a uh, study group. I've got a great okay. name for it, Dan. What is it? Call it, call it the SRP. <laughs> it's called the Snitch Report Protocol. <laughs> That's what it sounds like it's doing. It's like listening in on everyone else going, "Ooh." Oh, you've got that. Well, oh, you're using that. And then any device is a survey device. 
exactly it's, <laughs> it's useful it's useful and it gives it gives you a really good indication of what that device can hear i think it's a great idea you know so you, every device becomes a remote sensor on the network mm -hmm. without having additional software to add or an yeah. app yeah, I absolutely. absolutely. No agent to run. Yeah. So Rick's, we'll, we'll edit that bit out, Rick. It's your idea. <laughs> <laughs> you can have it. I mean, yeah. I've just nicked it from Cisco anyways. So. Yeah. Well, they're not going to kind of take it to the ITP, are they? No, it's special sauce. It's how they make the money. Sweet the bums yeah. under the table. Get rid of them <laughs> under the carpet. Apple. <laughs> You know, that brings up a, a good thing, guys. Uh, I had somebody tell me this. They were a Cisco employee one time, and I was complaining about 802.3 uh, AF power over Ethernet, and I had just gotten a new 802.11 N Cisco access point, and AF power, power over Ethernet wasn't enough to bring up both radios, so I was complaining, and the Cisco guy said, you know, you standards guys, you complain all the time, and yet you won't let us just take off and lead. And what he meant by that, and he's got a good point. The standards take a long, long time to develop. They take a long time to get out there. And that's because, mainly because there's so many people and so many opinions you have to satisfy, but also you have to live with that protocol forever. Yeah. Take, take for instance, Ethernet, which was the very first IEEE 802 Standards Association, 802.3 Ethernet was the first one. 40 years old, we're still living with that today. 802.11 prime and 802.11b, we still live with that today. And so you have to make sure that you're doing it right. Cisco and the manufacturers, they can do it faster. They've got, they've got the engineers, the scientists, the math, math guys, they can do this, do it quickly, get it out to the public. And they wanna do it because then you have to buy their equipment. Standards yeah. lets you mix and match, and that's the advantage. So which do you want? Do you want it now? Do you want it fast? Do you want to wait and have it work with everybody else? It's but, but both work kind of hand in hand, though, don't they? You know, you've got like Cisco with ClientLink, for example, that sort of led the way in standardizing beamforming and that benefited everyone. So I don't think there's a, a, pro, a, a positive or a negative to vendors doing their own thing because if it leads the way, because they've got the investment, they've got the money, they can put the resource behind developing all this new stuff. And then a standard follows behind and makes it compatible. That's a good thing, surely. But but for but for someone like Apple, they absolutely use it as a unique selling point. So, like Apple Wireless Direct Link, is an amazing technology. It would be amazing if they opened it up so that it was a standard and everyone could use it. But it takes away from their competitive advantage. You know, you can only get that if you have Apple devices, and they like that. They like the fact that no one else can do that. But when they've got something else that's unique, they'll offer that out and say yeah you guys we, we've made millions of this you can millions, catch up now you can have it and we'll move on to the next thing which is going to make us unique and separate yeah. us from everyone else so it's always they're all you know someone else is always playing catch up with apple which is capitalism exactly i mean cisco <laughs> have developed so many protocols haven't they that they yeah you know that right. they just said here you go you guys can have it now and it's for our benefit let's be honest cisco cisco haven't Cisco's bought a company that's developed a cool protocol. <laughs> Cisco just <laughs> buy it off. <laughs> but don't forget, uh, IEEE is only layer one and layer two, and layer three and four are going to buy IETF and, and like that. But uh, And also 802.11 does have direct link. That's 802.11z, I think it is, or direct link setup. And mm -hmm. um, so Apple's version is 
seems to be working better and it's uh it's wow. yeah. kind of uh, i never knew that so the ijp is only layer one and layer two i assumed it was everything uh, land and nope it is one and two only because the reason why i say that well i, I say that with ignorance because obviously a2.3 is internet which is layer two but i just assumed that everything that's built on top of that within the iso model is kind of an ieee ordained kind of certified standard as a protocol that says yes go out well, and prospect kind of thing and take 8021xe for instance 802.1 is port-based authentication but in order to get the higher layer types of uh, of um, credentials and things in there with extensible authentication protocol that come that's an rfc that comes from internet engineering task force so it's so complicated and so confusing right you can send anything over ethernet though can't you hey anyway i've got um i've got i've got a quiz for you for you rick okay i didn't know there was going to be a test pub quiz <laughs> it's not it's not a test it's a quiz because pub quiz pub, it's a pub quiz and i'm also this is also for dan and christian as well to um Okay, you ready? I'm, I'm Ryan. I'm Ryan. I'm on. Ryan. 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 Where are Ryan? Hey, Ryan? I didn't even notice he left. <laughs> <laughs> he's probably falling asleep in his car. Yeah, he's probably called over. I'll listen to this uh, podcast and decided to have a 40 winks. Um, we'll be having a, having a Greg somewhere, won't we? All right. <laughs> right, then here we go then. So let's see what you know about the right people. Okay. So, 802.x. Generic X, okay? Yeah. The 802, where did the 802 number come from? What's the history of the uh, Yeah, two things. And it, it was formed in 1980 in November, but that was also the next number. No, the next that's, not, number. that's not correct. That's not, correct. not correct. No, it wasn't formed. You were right the first part, 1980, but it wasn't formed in November. February of the 11th. Because you've just Googled it on Wikipedia. No, I haven't. Sure. No. Yes, right. Sorry, the you second. Look at you. You're looking at the screen. I, I remember that because in the... In oh, ECC, I remember that. Bernie, Bernie. ECSE. It was in ECSE. Yes, it was. Thank you, Dan. It Alan, have you not taken that class before? November <laughs> well, second month of year. <laughs> January, November. Right? So the thing about this is that it's tinged with... It's a not myth. a fact. It's it's like February 1980 was when they had the very first, um, I guess, first me first meeting of uh, what's the word they use, packet data communications or whatever they want to call it as, right? That and whatever they call it as, that was when they had the first kind of meeting, and it was then well, they facts. decided to say you're being like framed. 1980 <laughs> and the second, so they went with 802, and a lot of people dispute that and say that's not true. It's more of a case of it was like the next available number of some sort versus it being a date recognition. And I don't know if that's both. in your opinion. Is it both? Is it? I, that's what it says on the IEEE standard or oh, on, the website, okay. on the website uh, under history. And it says that it was formed in, you're right, February of 1980. And it was also the next number available. So I guess they're just hedging the dates. Well, here, here, let's go even further back in time. Okay. Before 1980, and there's a clue for the answer for the next one. Okay. Alan's time machine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wish. I just, oh, mate, I could go back in time. Where would I go? That's a good question. 
as a question for another podcast. <laughs> I was going to say, I haven't drunk when, enough for that. When, when was the IEEE formed in its current format, in its current IEEE base? The yeah, current version, I think that was 65. Oh, close. 63? Yes. 63, 65. 63, Rick, yes. And what were they called before that? And I guess the story behind how they became the IEEE. Before that, they were two separate organizations. Yes. The original this one guy. in 1894 was the American Institute for Electrical and Electronic Engineers. And then in 19, maybe 16, something like that, was the Institute for Radio Engineers. And that was formed, I think it was because of Google. That's good, isn't He's good. He's good. He's, he's ridiculous. He didn't even. He didn't even have to go to his notes for that one. He didn't, did he? I just, just messaged him. There's answer. no numbers in it. <laughs> Rick, where can we buy a copy of your little notepad that you've got there on the side? <laughs> I'll take a foot. It's it's like this. Pencil, nice. paper. All right. Old school. Two more questions. Two more questions to go before we finish. Then one of them is another factual one, and the last one is a. It's, 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 it's a question for me. Bonus we don't like you, Alan. We so don't like say. So, <laughs> um, so, Rick, do you know what the first ever public wireless packet data network transfer was called or part of? Uh, so I think you're talking about Aloha, right? Yes, I am. And right. yes, and, and tell us more about Aloha. Well, Aloha was uh, used by University of Hawaii to communicate between the islands, but I think the first packet data where they first modern might have been by the ham radio operator, a uh, amateur radio relay league, AWRL. Um, not not um, not data network packets. I'm talking about. I'm talking about data network packets. I think for the ham radio that might have been just. I don't know if that's the same thing. Okay. I, I don't think it was the same oh, thing. He's just, he's just reading off a website, Rick. So. No, I'm not reading off a website. I'm actually just like, you know, if, if you're, if you're... App, which is where my, my brain is, where all the information is, because that's where... It's I'm not on your second, not in your second screen. Wait, I don't have a second screen. Alan, if, if, if you are wondering, the first transmission of communication over wireless signals was actually by McCrony in London at the BT Centre opposite St Paul's. And that was in 19, uh, not 19, God, 1897, 18. I think. <laughs> yeah. And I've got a picture of me outside the BT office with that plaque behind me. Really? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I go there all, well, I used to go there all the time. I, right go, I go there all the time. <laughs> Family day yeah. out. Let's yeah, go whatever. to the BT centre. <laughs> to be fair, it's right next to St. Paul's. Um, so you do what, you do what past it, but yeah. There's a plaque and, there. And, and, and there was a first... There was actually a again. I did good research because I'm good at what I do. Um, <laughs> I Slow work day. <laughs> we, we agree. <laughs> <I'm> gonna... <laughs> so uh, I can't even read my notes. The screen's blurry. <laughs> Why didn't you type? Probably the screen. I, is... <laughs> I just can't read my notes. Uh, right, focus, Alan. Maybe the alcohol. Slash like seventy-two word out. <laughs> the alcohol. Um. So. What was the first use case for a wireless LAN that was created by the IEEE? What was it? Got to be fun. Got to be fun. <laughs> 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 first use case for, for wireless, for yeah. wireless LAN? 
Yeah, by the eight, by which, which which was the prelude for the creation of eight hundred two point eleven. Netflix. You know what it was called? No, I don't. I don't think I know that. So actually, research this because I was interested, and it's actually called Wavelength. And if you've heard of that, and the actual oh. prelude for the it was what gave birth to the eight hundred two point eleven protocol standard, which was okay. uh, called Wavelength, which was again uh, once. It's wireless LAN communication, and it was actually for uh, national cash registers back okay. in 1990, um, type of thing with um, something like the NCR, which is like the National Cash Register Association, whatever it is, AT&T. Um, I, was, I was like, I was like, really? Is that how AO2.11 was created? Based because obviously Thanks. the first, the Prime. When did Prime come out? Late 90s. Uh, 97. 97. So this was 1990 when it was actually, you know, 11, well, it was called Waveland. I was like, wow, I didn't know that. That was just like a pointless, I mean, imagine so that I, coming up on a wireless pub quiz in the WLA one day. Yeah. Think. My first experience <laughs> with wireless period, I was a Novell and an Ethernet guy and a token ring guy. And my first experience was with Waveland. Yeah, AT&T, and it was uh, it was a eight bit ISA card that we put inside the Nobel servers, put an antenna on the roof, and it was nine hundred megahertz. And uh, that's and then that was in ninety five. Two years later, eight hundred two eleven prime came out, and that's how I got started in wireless. But there um, is a lot of there is a lot of different stories. Yeah, there's a lot of conflicting stories because one of Fred Niehaus from Cisco, one of his presentations is about you know back in the early nineties scrapping. Uh, a scanner on the back of a radio and transmitting scans through and stuff like that and from there they created aeronet or whatever it was back then and that eventually turned into wi-fi but uh, to be honest with you, i've always taken that story with a bit of a pinch of salt but it does it does tell it in, a, in an animated fashion and uh it's a, it's a good story it's probably on youtube somewhere i'm, I'm rambling it's, it's no, I think it's line. interesting <laughs> stuff. That that history was pretty neat, and uh, that I think that wavelength was nine hundred megahertz ISM. Yes, it was. It's actually nine hundred and two point four, um, actually. So, um, uh, well, just, just just so you know, yeah. DCF or DCF Alan? Neither. It didn't exist. <laughs> All right, my final one, which is an Alan question. Okay. The IEEE AO AO. Honestly, I think it's said. Uh, this, uh, what's it called? <laughs> I think this blueberry muffin pale ale is a god of a head. Sorry, you've uh, been drinking that for two hours now. No, I've moved on to the uh, I've moved on to uh, I forgot to mention this one earlier actually. It's called the Vermont, the Vermont Sessions, which is a brew dog versus northern monk kind of collaboration. Hmm. So I'm not quite sure. I didn't even realize it's funny because my father in law cleared out my beer fridge. I have a beer fridge, obviously. Shock. I found beers that I didn't know I had. I was like, oh my God, Hazy Jane's in there. And I'm like, I love that stuff. And it's mm. because I, it, my beer fridge just gets packed with all sorts of Two-fold. beers. And, and Yeah. <laughs> and obviously the big cans like these ones, obviously, you know, overshadow the, the little ones. <laughs> and then, you know, like, I'm digressing from my quiz, man. And anyway, so it was hidden behind all these cans. And I was like, oh my God. So anyway. Yes, I was quite happy. Anyway, so so um we'll edit this bit out. So final question then, okay? Sure. No. <laughs> well that's the most important bit we've spoken about. Yeah. <laughs> the Northern monks are the best types of monks as well. 
so it's a kind of two-part question because I'm because I'm just weird. <laughs> True or false? The I the tri- the IEEE eight oh one exists. And why? Yeah, Christian's going to Google that. No, so, I'm not handling so, it. It's so, okay. yeah, so, so let me ask you the question. Let me ask you the question again. <laughs> IEEE 801 exists. True or false? False. Okay. False. Okay. True. It does. And why would it... So the answer is it does. And why would that be that? Are you sure it's not 802.1? Not 801. It's IEEE 801. If you Google it... Huh. I'm not sure. It, it, it exists, but there's a reason why it exists. Because they want it to be one better than 802. No, it's, a really, it's, it's just it's really innocuous. It's just so simple, it's ridiculous. What is it then? It's because it's a typo. That's <laughs> 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 the truth. I even Googled IEEE 800-801. And what I found was that people actually in Google searches they come up as IEEE out of one if you just Google it honestly for, for shits and giggles right just do it and okay. you'll see that people actually uh, it comes up in the, the, the Google searches but then you click on it and what you'll find is that it's just a typo because somebody oh. in the presentation it should be 802 dot it should be 802 not 801 and I found that quite hilarious so I thought I didn't I thought I'd had that oh yeah the I IEEE standard 801.ax yeah but then if you actually Go into whatever the PDF or the document or the website. It's eight or two. It's eight or two. Yeah, that's the irony. I was like, <laughs> oh, that'd be that's just stupid. But there you go. So yeah, that's a that's a, that's a weird, weird question. Thanks. For nice. I'm going to play some <laughs> jingle music over this, but uh, it's been fun. <laughs> weird out. Weird out. Weird out. Activates. There we go. Great. Well, thanks for thanks for coming, Rick. That was really, really cool. I really enjoyed that. That was a lot of fun, you guys. I love being able to chat with others who think this is um, interesting because not too many people in my family agree with that. <laughs> I don't think it's interesting. <laughs> uh, Rick, ne- next time the IEEE get together, can you just ask them to give us all a phone call? Because we've got, we've got good ideas. We can, we can yeah. definitely help out. Yeah. I, I can sure <laughs> ask them. We'll stand right up there at the microphone and say, you know what? I got these guys who'd like to talk to you. We should we should do a live podcast from the next IEEE meeting. Yeah. We can all fly out to India, right? Just love it. biggest channels ever. We could do that. We could do that. We could all meet. And the next one, I think, is uh, if they have it, would be in Vancouver. Oh, I like Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. I, don't, I think so, it may be virtual. Because when? Ah, oh, boo! That's not good. It's not if, Vancouver. What about if if it is Vancouver between January and March? Ah. Oh. No, I'll, have to, I'll have to check. Go uh, watch the Canucks you, play. You just want to s- snowboard. I the meeting uh, eight hundred two meeting planner, and it'll show you what the, where the meetings are. I reckon, I reckon we should just like get a, a like a podcast kind of crew. We'll all fly over, <clears> right? And just like, well, if, just, like if anyone wants to, if anyone wants to sponsor the podcast, then we can afford to go and do all these things. See, hey, perfect. We need sponsorship, don't we? <laughs> we need we need beer money and flights to nice places where we can either sit on a beach or snowboard. Sit on a beach yeah. or snoboard. That's one extreme <laughs> or the other. So it's like, exactly. <laughs> California and Colorado. We'll just go to Rick's place because he lives in the mountains. 
Thanks for coming on and uh, giving us a bit of an inside scoop on the IEEE and appreciate your, uh, you know, sharing the knowledge and discussing with us on the FDMA and six gig stuff. Um, it's been it's been insightful, definitely. Definitely, yeah. I've, I've, yeah. I mean, I don't normally enjoy technical talks, to be honest with you. But <laughs> this is this is the most yeah. technical we've ever been. I think yep. I think we mentioned eight hundred two to eleven X once, and that was probably like in episode one in the first five minutes, and that's the last time we talked about Wi-Fi. Y- Yerman's actually gonna <laughs> actually gonna enjoy this one, isn't he? I think so. I think you need to tune <laughs> yeah. out. Yerman, this is the one you need to listen to. Yeah. It's going to if I could recommend that everybody, if you get a copy of the eight hundred two eleven standard, I don't expect you to read it cover to cover, but it's it's the horse's mouth. So whenever there's a question, we had some great questions. I I answered as best I could, but. I think uh, every about four of your questions, I would need to get back into the standard and start tracing it down and see how does this work and what does it affect and how is this going to help me or hurt me in the future? I've tried that and it's before. All in the standard, but the standard's it's, too. It's not it's, easy. It's too um, big. It's too. There's too many pages, well, and you just get dwarfed. And then it is interpretation as well, right? I've had uh, conversations okay. with others like Devin Vonage. Um, a few others that are, I, I regard as, you know, really Excellent. technically get, yeah, absolutely. They, they know the standard really well. And yet there's conflict in kind of assumptions of what the interpretation is actually saying. And, you know, I don't know if it's because they're drinking vendor Kool-Aid or because they, you know, believe that's the interpretation because that's their version of events. And it, it's, it's like, well, if the standards, it's saying it in black and white and it's being misinterpreted. Oh, screw. <laughs> Let's be honest. There's parts of the standard where it says you must do this. There's parts of the standard that says you can do this. And there's parts in the standard that just leave it open for the manufacturer. That's why the Wi-Fi Alliance plays such a big role saying, okay, here's a feature that everybody's going to implement. And if you want to get your Wi-Fi Alliance certification, then you have to be able to pass this test of these stuff. And that's, that's why right. Apple. That's why Apple don't certify any of their stuff anymore. <laughs> I, th- I think, to be honest with you, I think we're going down a rabbit hole for another conversation. But yeah. I, that that to me sounds like you know you must go to London. Is that by train? Is that by boat? Is that by car? Is that by plane? How do I get there? And that's I think that's one of the reasons we see such disparity in vendors and clients um, try to get the standard Chris, or interpreting the standard to get it up and running from from where you are mate you can probably what? just walk to london it's only about 10 minutes <laughs> yeah, up the road just, just north of london are, yeah. <laughs> just north of london you are aren't you <laughs> according to every american you've got a tiny I, little I, country <laughs> i mean we fit inside denver uh, Colorado, yeah so. that's true yeah yeah <laughs> but Rick, we, we should we should do this again sometime, but maybe yeah. with some more prep and with people listening to this episode, we'll be able to get some uh, <laughs> questions in from from the audience. We, we've got, I think we've got three listeners now, haven't we? Yeah, oh, yeah, I think this we is, have. This man. is also the first. Look at that. We didn't play voicemail. I must have just realised. No, we 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 didn't. We didn't get any in. Yeah. That's quite disappointing. If I'm honest, I'm disappointed in our listeners. If you're listening, yeah. I'm disappointed. I want. Yeah. I want. I want. You'd inundate your voice fails. At any point, do you think you might change the batteries in your clock? <laughs> oh, because it's still stuck at court. I thought it was 46. That's when he turned 40. So that's why you haven't turned 40 yet.
Right, cheers guys. Thank you very much. <laughs>